Well, hello and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. Rusana, my co-host, will join us next week. We're still trying to get the schedule down. She's in Vladivostok and I'm in Pittsburgh. That's about a 14-hour difference. And daylight savings have just added more to the time zone juggling. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 and $25. So if you'd like to support this podcast, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Euronaut, that's E-U-R-A-K-N-O-T, or to Euronaut.org and hit the Patreon button and become a monthly patron. So we're back. We have a new name, a new theme song, some new art, and we're expanding the format. But since Rusana isn't here, I thought we'd wait till next week so we can explain what we have planned together. But first up, um, we have a story I've been working on called A Gift for Stalin. Uh, Making Teddy Goes to the USSR made me fall in love with doing narrative audio. And by the way, I should mention to those who might not know, Teddy Goes to the USSR was nominated for an Ambies Award for Best DIY Podcast, and I actually went to Las Vegas in early March to attend the award ceremony. I didn't win. There was a lot of great podcasts that were nominated, and I was definitely honored to be nominated since Teddy Goes to the USSR was my first narrative documentary. So anyway, I've been working on a gift for Stalin for the last few months, and the idea, though, was actually born a few years ago. I thought up the idea to take one document from history and do a narrative piece about it, kind of a micro history, take a document, expand out to bigger issues. But since I was doing the SRB podcast all by myself and making Teddy at the same time, I just didn't have the time. So the the idea was kind of put on the back shelf. But when I went on hiatus and decided to rebrand, I took time to develop this document idea, and A Gift for Stalin is the result. It's two episodes. Uh, This is the first. I won't tell you what it's about because I want to keep it kind of a surprise. So here is episode one of A Gift for Stalin. Episode two will come out next week, and I really hope you find it informative and entertaining. This podcast contains cuss words. So discretion is advised. Otherwise, let them roll. It's Sunday, October 13th, 1935. And someone, we don't know who, mails a letter from the outskirts of Moscow. It's addressed, Kremlin, to Comrade Stalin. It arrives a few days later. Now, there's nothing odd about people writing Stalin. They wrote him a lot to plead for help, to give advice, to complain, to denounce, and to threaten. The letters could be incredibly personal and also incredibly irate. So many letters poured into Soviet officials, one historian called letter writing a national pastime. So when Comrade Sintorovskaya, one of the secretaries sorting Stalin's mail, got to this letter, she had no reason to worry. That is, until she opened it. There was a letter in one of the packages. This is Arch Getty. He's a historian at UCLA, specializing in the Stalin period. I'm what they call an archive rat, and I absolutely love what I do. So, there was this letter. One of the packages with a small piece of brown-colored mass. It was carefully wrapped in paper. Now, it's unclear whether anything else came with the brown mass, and if there was a letter or some other note, 
we sadly don't know what it said. Or perhaps Comrade Sentorovskaya forgot all about the letter, because to her surprise, the mass looked like excrement. You heard that right. A turd. Sent through the mail. To the Kremlin, addressed the Comrade Stalin. According to Comrade Sentryovskaya and other employees, a strong smell emanated from the open package. And it smelled like cloves. Was the mass really shit? Sentorovskaya wasn't sure, so she showed it to her supervisors. They looked at it, smelled the cloves too, and agreed, yes, it was shit. Shocked and upset, and probably grossed out, Sentorovskaya grabbed the mass and carried it to the bathroom where she threw it in the toilet. Sentorovskaya then went back to her desk and returned to opening Stalin's mail. But a few minutes later, she started to feel queasy. She stood up and came dizzy. As she entered the room, she fell on the floor, hitting the back of her head. She must have hit her head pretty hard. She was out for a few minutes, and when she came to, she was blind. Doctors were sent for, and Comrade Zentrodyovskaya was sent to the hospital. Zentrodyovskaya's sudden illness caused alarm. Was the brown mass toxic, a primitive, clove-smelling bioweapon? Since she threw the turd in the toilet, all that was left was some remnants on the envelope, and that was taken to the NKVD laboratory. That is, to Stalin's secret police for analysis. And that was all the cops had to go on. A shit stain. Fingering the letter's origin proved impossible. The stamp showing the town it came from was too smudged to make out. Doctors determined that Sentrovskaya wasn't exposed to a chemical agent or poison, and her collapse and sudden blindness resulted from a, quote, hysterical episode, unquote. Her eyesight was now close to normal. What does close to normal mean? Is she still partly blind? Is she therefore in a position to open letters? Um, there's no exclamation point here. This is in all seriousness. Now, the mailroom supervisor did adopt some safety measures, just in case. Those who open mail will be provided with rubber gloves, which must be worn when opening letters. Two, they have been given a supply of disinfectants. This minor episode has stuck with me for a long time. The idea that someone sent feces to Stalin will do that. Several years ago, my partner Maya and I had this idea to write about this incident. We never got around to it, so I did an audio story about it instead. This story is based on the shit documents, as Maya and I called them, three short reports about the turd to Stalin, an initial summary of the incident, a second more detailed report on what happened and Sentorovskaya's condition, and a final report on the lab analysis of the CAC. Researchers found these documents in the Presidential Archive of the Russian Federation. It was, and remains, the holy grail of Russian archives. It houses some of the most secret documents from the Soviet period. The Soviet Union fell in 1991. The archives of the Soviet Secret Services, the KGB, partially opened, but not for long. The 1990s were the peak of the archival revolution. But there's been limits placed on access to police documents since. And in 2015, the new FSB declared the identity of officers who'd signed deportation and execution orders state secrets. Today, some Russian historians really fighting to keep information in the public domain. Still, the 1990s for archive rats like Arch. We're all like kids in a candy store. You know, we, we went practically overnight from having no access 
to complete and open access. Uh, so everything was wide open. I mean, there was more stuff than we could even digest. When they brought me for the first time a collection of telegrams and letters that Stalin had sent, the original paper with the original thick blue pencil signature that he used, I almost lost my breath. It was an embarrassment of riches, really. That embarrassment of riches contained some pretty crazy stuff, but there probably are very few documents about sending poop to Stalin. All three reports were published in 1993 in the Stochnik, one of several Russian journals at the time dedicated to publishing recently classified documents. The shit reports were duly placed in the issue's humor from the restricted section. Now, why would someone mail Stalin poo? The answer seems obvious, but unsatisfactory. I want to think about the shit documents in the wider context of the Stalinist 1930s and dig into some of the possibilities of what the sender was trying to say by mailing Stalin this little brown mass. This is A Gift for Stalin, the first of two episodes about a piece of shit mailed to the Soviet dictator and what it might have meant in the Soviet Union in the mid-1930s. This is episode one, Dear Comrade Stalin. First, I wanted to get some reactions. So I asked Arch what he made of the shit documents. Well, my first reaction was to laugh hysterically. First of all, the idea that someone would send a turd to Stalin. But more than that, as I read through it and, you know, finally controlled my giggles, that it would be published in 1993, that the otherwise incredibly serious people in charge of document publication, why they would pick something like this. I also asked John Waterloo. I'm the author of It's Only a Joke, Comrade, uh, which looks at humor and everyday life under Stalin. What did he think of the turd to Stalin? I was giggling like a crazy person. As <laughs> it's, it's hilarious to read, and also it plays out like a comedy in itself, because it's, it's simultaneously a practical joke, and it's a dangerous political act. At the same time, John says there's something very ordinary about it all. What made it especially so for me was... They say, okay, um, we've taken, we've got some action steps for how to deal with this in future. The mailroom people will now wear rubber gloves and we've invested in a number of disinfectants. And I just thought this just sounds like any local council around, around the world. And that feels so much more relatable and makes this place that I think we often mythologize come much closer to our own experience. What struck both Arch and John was the bureaucraties in the reporting on the turd to Stalin. I thought it was a fascinating example of Soviet officialese, bureaucratic language. So as a document, it's very stodgy. It's in a very prescribed linguistic manner. Uh, there's no sense of accountability. And they all follow a, you know, a format, a kind of a style where this happened and then this happened, this happened and this happened. According to the people who were present, a strong smell emerged. And it was determined that. Like, I'm not going to say for sure myself there was a strong smell. These are the people there on the line as to whether or not the smell existed. You know, the format can be applied to, uh, I don't know, studying a tank. But then you boil it down and go, so what happened? 
Like this, this poor woman <laughs> opens an envelope, finds some shit inside, runs away to the toilet, collapses, and then apparently goes blind. I mean, it's so... <laughs> I wonder what the people who were compiling the report were doing. Were they in full Soviet mode? Like saying, this is an outrage, this is terrible, she really has gone blind, we need to be very careful about all of this. Or were they also laughing, but knowing that they had to put on a serious face when they reported it? Even when the subject was, you know, opening an envelope and finding a turd. Crafting those reports triggered something else. It launched the feces on a journey through the bowels of the Soviet system. And what came out the other side was essentially bureaucratic shit, of which there are piles and piles. Well, it was a paper generating machine. That's one thing. Now, Arch says that the Bolsheviks documented everything and kept everything. Even things that would, you would obviously think that they would be embarrassed about. Like, to take one example, the decision to shoot Polish officers in 1940, the so-called Katyn massacre. They kept every single paper about it. And that includes the sensitive, the criminal, and the comical, like the reports about Putin's Stalin. There was no kind of hiding something from themselves or anything like that. Uh, this is something that, that strikes everybody who spent any time in Soviet archives. And nobody ever went broke. Nobody ever got in trouble for reporting too much. And, and I was reminded, uh, a French visitor in the 19th century described the Russian bureaucratic mode as laborious futility. A kind of chronic bureaucratic diarrhea, if you will. We as I said at the beginning, Stalin got a lot of letters. A lot. As the Soviet writer Nadezhda Mandelstam wrote, Which one of us had never written letters to the supreme powers addressed to the most metallic of names? She means Stalin here. Now we only have guesses as to just how many letters Stalin got. One historian estimates that by the mid-1930s, the dictator received about 200,000 a year, and from all walks of life but most came from regular people. The subjects are extremely wide, but they, they fall into categories of, please help me out, or I need to report to you malfeasance by somebody. Most supplicants signed their names, though as in the case with our turd, many were sent anonymously. The letters were often written in a ritualized style that predated the Soviet era. Dear Comrade Stalin, uh, I am really sorry to trouble you. I know you're really busy. My, my matter here is unimportant. But you should know that. And then 20 pages of details about some jerk who is misusing his position. The special sector of the Central Committee, with a staff of 29, Sentarovskaya among them, opened, screened, and separated the postal wheat from the chafe. Or the credible from the crazy. Stalin wasn't the only recipient of citizens' letters. National and local leaders all got them, and in great numbers. Letters poured into newspapers, local Soviets, state agencies, the police, and Politburo members in the millions. For Soviet leaders, letters were important sources of unfiltered information about society that bypassed officialdom. Pravda, for example, would often bundle similar-themed reader letters and send them to the Politburo for discussion. 
this was a huge bureaucracy. Um, it was a bureaucracy of blame shifting and scapegoating. So there you are sitting there at your desk trying to run an organization, and you have a blizzard of self-interested information coming from people. And letters from below are one way to sift that out. It's, it's one way, it's another source of information to compare against other sources of information. Most letters to Stalin went straight to the archive, especially if they were of little interest, the typical gripes, incoherent ramblings, or labeled from a deranged person. Others were forwarded to relevant agencies or officials. A small minority were sent to the dictator. What reached Stalin's desk fell into a handful of categories that piqued his interests or met his priorities. If you knew or met Stalin at some point, you had a good chance he got your letter. Missives that asked theoretical questions or suggested solutions tended to make it as well. So did proposals for inventions, discoveries, or scientific research. Like one anonymous letter from Egypt claiming to have invented death rays, even though the mailroom labeled it untrustworthy. But Stalin had the final say. Sometimes Stalin dispatched them to the appropriate officials with something like, look into this, scrawled across in his infamous blue pencil. On rare occasions, he answered in the press if he got a bunch of letters addressing similar subjects. Friendly social classes, like workers, peasants, and intellectuals, got the leader's eyes. Enemies, kulaks, prisoners, oppositionists, were typically ignored. These guys at the top are reading all this stuff. They are reading about a turd showing up in an envelope. They are reading about six teenagers telling a political joke in Kazan. They spend an enormous amount of time reading, sifting, sorting in a, in a kind of desperate attempt to figure out what's going on. So breaking down all of the bureaucratic fecal passing through the state's intestines was a big part of the job. At one point, Arch says, Stalin even sent a memo complaining that Politburo members weren't reading enough. One responded, Okay, I read all day. What are you talking about? And Stalin replied, You don't read novels. You don't read screenplays. You don't read great cultural works. And the, the Politburo members complained to each other, how the hell does he expect us to have time to read novels with all the stuff we've got to do? And that brings us back to the shit documents. Now we have an idea why we have them and a look into their nature. But how did the Soviet leadership make sense of the turd? After all, the shit documents circulated amongst the highest officials in the Soviet Union. Now, we don't know what Stalin and the gang thought. If they commented at all, what they said is still locked away. However, the anonymous turd arrived at the precise moment when, according to the Kremlin, life had become more dangerous for the Soviet leadership. Yeah, in 1935, it was, a, it was very much a mixed picture. First of all, the economy was beginning to recover from collectivization. But at the same time, a Politburo member and close associate of Stalin, uh, Serge Kirov, was assassinated just in December 1934, just, just before this. Sergei Kirov was in the small circle of longtime Stalin guys that went back to the revolution. 
and Stalin considered Kirov one of his closest confidants, once referring to him as my friend and dear brother. And the fact that the assassin, a disgruntled nobody named Lenin Nikolaev, could waltz into Leningrad party headquarters and pop Kirov, arguably the second most powerful official in the USSR, caused panic in Stalin's inner circle. And that led to official thinking that maybe this opposition out there is more serious than we thought it was. Maybe somebody's going to take a shot at us. Uh, people are carrying guns around and, you know, people are, some people are angry enough to use them. Like many high-profile murders, Kirov's has been the subject of conspiracy theories and speculation for decades. Like, Kirov was Stalin's rival, or Kirov was a liberal alternative, and Stalin killed Kirov to initiate the terror. None of this was the case. Kirov was a Stalin man through and through, and there's little evidence to suggest otherwise. Historians have since concluded that Nikolaev was likely a disturbed lone gunman, distraught over getting canned from his job. Yet while Stalin didn't kill Kirov, he certainly exploited the murder to get rid of his enemies, real and imagined. This was the first time a really top senior leader had been assassinated in almost 20 years. This was a big deal. Stalin immediately lashed out. Oppositionists were rounded up. Hundreds were shot. Two of Lenin's close confidants and Stalin rivals, Grigory Zinoviev and Lev Kamenev, were jailed for moral complicity in the murder. Then there was the law of December 1, 1934, the so-called Kirov Law, a quickly drafted draconian decree where anyone accused of terrorism could be convicted without due process or right of appeal and immediately shot. Think of it as Stalin's Patriot Act. The Kirov Law provided the legal basis for the executions of hundreds of thousands in the following years. So the leadership responded with a panicked iron fist. But what about the person on the street? What did they think of Kirov's killing? The response was varied, of course. Most people just didn't care. Others did and used the murder to vent their own frustration with Soviet life. And there was enough venting for the secret police to record an uptick of negative chatter about Kirov. Again, here's John Waterloo. Where people seem to want to have a Soviet Day of the Dead and just have an exuberant partying sense, things to get drunk, to tell jokes, to hang out. Uh, this woman announced at a party meeting, if I knew where Kirov was buried, I'd go and take a shit on his grave, which is, of course, not the solemn mourning experience that the leadership were wanting. Instead, people concocted theories like his murder was part of a power struggle. Kirov, a known yubochnik, that is a skirt chaser, was screwing Nikolaev's wife. Nikolaev was mentally ill. He was Kirov's bastard son. Some even saw Nikolaev as a hero and respected him for his bravery. And all along with the rumors, people just laughed. A lot of it is gallows humor. And you can create a, a powerful psychological distance where you put the dangerous and scary things in a little box and put it to one side, and you label it instead as something that's ridiculous and laughable. John says that the police recorded jokes by default. Why would you make fun of this brilliant regime, this wonderful regime? That's a suspicious thing to do. And after Kiro's murder, Humor was increasingly equated with um, subversive counter-revolutionary activity. And by the mid-1930s, it was even seen as being more or less on a par with leaking state secrets. And the regime cracked down hard. They were punishable under perhaps the most notorious article of the, the criminal code, Article 5810, the same 
the one that it says anti-Soviet agitation, which is nicely vague and can bring in many different things. And some of this humor was expressed in shit jokes. One that I like, it's not a spoken joke, but it's more of a prank like this, sending the shit to Stalin. That In the Belarusian city of Gomel, on the resident Lenin statue, who's in the famous Lenin pose pointing, we assume, towards the bright future, that on the regular at night, people would hang up a, a briefcase or a bag that was full of shit on his arm. And then the authorities would have to over and over again <laughs> go and take this down implied there's like well what kind of future is he pointing towards exactly some jokes were directed right at stalin this is one of my favorites because it's so simple if you change the t in stalin for an r he transforms from being the man of steel into sralin the man of shit or shit man which is not the best superhero i would imagine in the world this turn to scatology this use of shit it's it's funny, it's dramatic, it's dethroning. But I also feel there's an aspect of weakness to it, that people are so without power to effect any change or have their voices heard. All they have left is imagining the most simplistic kind of humiliation of let's imagine shitting on Stalin or let's imagine that Stalin's covered in shit. And there's just something about a leader who can't take a joke. We wouldn't really consider them to be strong. If we look at it only as they cracked down and arrested everyone who told a joke, we think, whoa, that seems very mighty. But step back and go, they think that their power is threatened because Ivan Ivanovich has told a little joke on the factory floor. Are you crazy? Maybe so. But 1935, the paranoia about jokes went lockstep with a general panic about lapsed security. In the Kremlin. Dangerous people are working there. You know, it's prime grounds for an assault on the leadership. Therefore, security in the first half of 1935 is tightened considerably at buildings, in offices, and here, in, even in the, in the mailroom. Yet surprisingly, when it came to the shit documents, there isn't. It's any speculation or description in the document about who did this. They're not throwing around words like enemy of the people or terrorist, or anything like that. And they know it's not okay, and they think they need to tell the top brass, but no one's really drawing any sort of narrative conclusions from it, which is quite striking for, you know, 1935. Okay, uh, a turd has come into the office. Now, what does that mean? Is that an attempt on Stalin's life? Is it poisonous? Is this an assassination going on? So even the most mundane, hilarious things... Uh, requires a response of some kind. Because, you know, this incident could be twisted by somebody down the line into a huge conspiracy that you were a part of. Then again, the Kremlin's reaction to the turd is not all that surprising because... Well, it's, it's funny because it's excrement. And while it's funny because the Central Committee, the NKVD... The Red Army all got involved in playing with this turd. But on the other hand, there's something behind it. If, for example, the president in the White House gets an envelope and white powder flies out of it, people think anthrax, people think poison, people think, what the hell is this? That probably generates its own kind of voluminous paperwork of, of reports here. So it's not entirely crazy what happened here.
As I said at the outset, part of my interest in this little story was to explore the sender's intentions. Since we have no idea who they were, all we can do is speculate. But for the sake of argument, let's say, yeah, it's an insult to Stalin. But what kind of slight is meant by mailing poop? It's, it's very direct. Well, I think it's pretty obvious. I mean, if you, if you send a turd to anybody, it's not a compliment. It's a kind of a way to say, you're a shit, here's some shit. It's, it's not just imagining Stalin getting shit on, but this is, this is my shit. This is like me directly saying, I'm superior to you. I'm humiliating you because this is, this is premeditated. This is carefully organized and put together. But as Arch says, as insults go, it's a pretty safe one. The secret police determined that the postmark, what they could read of it, was from another city. Uh, and if you're going to send, you know, an insult to Stalin, you're not going to write it down because then they can maybe trace the handwriting and the style and stuff like that. You're not going to do anything that leaves a lot of fingerprints, as it were. Um, and therefore, it's a highly symbolic but relatively safe way to send a personal insult to the guy in charge. And for the person sending this turd, the humor that came from it might have made life under Stalin a bit more palatable, and even a basis for knowing who your real friends are. It's really interesting and important to consider not just the individual who did it, but what about the amusement and joy of sharing this illicit act with other people, sharing it with people and being drawn together through that shared risk of doing this, of of lightening the load of their experience by pointing out what they didn't like about it, but at the same time, this sort of conspiratorial intimacy, and also, in a sense, voicing their opinions and that that sense of power of doing something, when in their, their daily lives, they could really do nothing of political impact. John says that in a time of denunciation and mass arrests, sharing jokes became an expression of trust. It's like, I'm telling you about me sending Comrade Stalin a turd because I know you won't rat me out and I won't squeal on you either. To be willing to share this thing with others is, is a serious statement. This is really powerful. It's this I joke, therefore I am feeling. It's a proof to yourself, to your friends that you can think that you haven't been entirely crushed, even if you have to go through the motions that are expected of you publicly the whole time. It's sort of an emotional, mental, psychological palate cleanser in a way, and it, it punctures a life of otherwise stifling conformity in the 1930s. So life had become more dangerous. Even postal poo could be a threat. Jokes, subversive. And joke tellers arrested for anti-Soviet agitation. At least that's how Stalin and his crew saw things following the Kirov assassination. Yet has Stalin himself declared in November 1935, a mere month after the poo dropped in his mail, life had also become happier. And if you look at Soviet propaganda at the time, that happiness was thanks to Comrade Stalin. The Stalin cult went on overdrive in 1934. References to him flooded newspapers. Stalin appeared more in public, especially the press the flesh with the masses. Photos were snapped, portraits painted, applause thundered, and toasts lifted. The name Stalin was bookended with puffery, like the great leader, father of the people, the wise helmsman, and the genius of our epoch, and so on. 
Stalin was given top billing in mythic pasts, imaginary presents, and radiant futures. Soviet power had become personalized power, not just in terms of Stalin's own grip, but that Stalin was not simply a leader or even a helmsman. Stalin was Soviet power. When his son Vasily declared, I'm a Stalin too, Stalin allegedly shouted, you're not Stalin and I'm not Stalin. Stalin is Soviet power. Stalin is what he is in the newspapers and portraits. Not you, no, not even me. Like the kings of old, Stalin had two bodies, a body of flesh, a body that shits, and a symbolic body, a body that represents Soviet power, and both needed to be without blemish, clean to filth, even in writing. The police even issued a directive to this effect. It forbade the direct quotation and reports of sharp and abusive language, anti-Soviet jokes, obscenities, etc., directed toward the leaders of the party. Swearing might be edited out, and you'd have to guess. It would just say, unprintable words. And sometimes they'd even censor Stalin's name. They would, like, the punchline would edit out, and it would say the name of one of the leaders or the leader of the socialist government. As if voicing it was like a magic spell that would somehow cause problems by having it spoken aloud. Like, we can't say Voldemort <laughs> or something bad's going to happen right now. Yet the Stalin cult could also have another effect, disgust. As one supporter warned, Everything is Stalin. Stalin, Stalin, Stalin. Just listen to a radio program about our successes and every fifth or tenth word will be Comrade Stalin. As a result, Stalin's sacred and beloved name may rattle so loudly in people's heads that it's quite possible it will have the opposite effect. Like inspiring someone to post some stool to that sacred and beloved name. And the equation of Stalin, his person, his image, even the word Stalin, with the sacred inevitably made the profane all the more dangerous. And it can turn the highest levels of awe into the lowest forms of debasement. Like in this joke. You know how... Everything in the Soviet Union, and often in Russia today, is named after someone. So you have Lenin's library, Biblioteca Imeni Lenina. Well, someone decided that Kustalin's name is everywhere. Then let's just add next to the workplace toilet sign, Tualiet Imeni Stalina. And I'm like, right back down to the everyday level. Or take the extraordinary story of the chocolate Stalin. In 1939, the Soviet writer Valery Agronovsky went on a school field trip to the Moscow Babayev candy factory. He was nine years old. And there on the factory floor was a giant chocolate bust of Stalin sitting on a pedestal. It was likely a gift to the leader for his 60th birthday. Suddenly, someone bumped into the Coca Stalin, knocking it to the floor. It shattered into pieces. Agronovsky recalled, Our teachers were stunned. And when the director came out of his office and saw what had happened to the chocolate leader of all progressive humanity, he went completely pale, looked around, and quietly uttered with a slightly open mouth, Eat it. We heard his command, and not just heard it, but perfectly understood it. And we jumped on the best friend and teacher of all Soviet children. The first thing that struck me was that Stalin turned out to be empty inside. The young Agronovsky scooped up Stalin's ear a bonbon the size of his foot, and began stuffing his face. Normally, a chocolate that size would have taken him a day to scarf down. But 
But like any blessed object, the candy Stalin couldn't simply be swept up and tossed in the trash. It had to be destroyed. But now we quickly finished Stalin. Nothing was left of him, not a single crumb. The director, we think, even forbade sweeping the floor, which would be an extra blasphemy. Not that there was anything left to sweep. It was Stalin, after all. Agronovsky doesn't remember how long it took them to cannibalize Stalin, but he did remember that the best friend and teacher of all Soviet children turned out to be no friend at all, and no teacher either, because what goes in must also come out. None of us kids were at school the next day. We all had the runs. It's horrible to say, but it turned out Yosef Vissarionovich was also rotten. In the late 1930s, consuming the Stalin cult was like a collective receiving of the Eucharist. Agronovsky noted that the demand for porches of Stalin was as high as for basic foodstuffs, so much so that he and his brother were able to find steady work painting the leader of all progressive humanity. He did the mustache, his brother, the rest, and they could barely keep up with demand. So, Soviet citizens were devouring the Stalin cult alongside their daily bread, or in Agronovsky's case, their daily bread because of the Stalin cult. If Stalin personified Soviet power and what goes in must come out, then Soviet people's poop were offerings to the happy life he had bestowed upon them. As one woman who lived through the 1930s recalled, thanking comrade Stalin for the provision of a happy life became a commonplace ritual. And what is more ritualistic than taking a shit? Only this time, our anonymous letter writer wrapped one up and sent it as a gift. That's right, a gift. How could I think such a thing was a gift? We'll turn to that in part two of A Gift for Stalin. A Gift for Stalin was written, edited, and produced by Sean Guillory. Voiceovers by Maya Haber and Greg Weinstein. Music by Harry Edvino, JR Productions, Ludwig Mullen, Stationary Sign, and Simon Slepakov. Thanks to Arch Getty and John Waterloo for participating. And thanks to Michelle Ransom, Alice Gardner, and Rusana Novakova for their ears. For a list of sources consulted for A Gift to Stalin, go to the Eurasian Knot at Yuranot.org. Коммунисты, демократы, как же так они все есть, и их всем не нехер есть, и комфортно жить в стране, где народ живет в говне. Ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-ля-